Welcome to Everyday Drinking, presented by the Eat, Drink, Dine Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jason Wilson. You can do uh, dry, uh, off dry, sweet wine, dessert wines, and uh, sparkling. Uh, so you can make the whole type of uh, white wine, which is great. That's Julian Pinon talking about the many faces of Chenin Blanc, which his family has grown on their estate in Vouvray since around 1786. Uh, but it is a very uh, fragile uh, um, uh, variety, uh, very depending on the, cl- on the climate. So uh, we cannot do everything every year. Uh, it, it will follow the year, the, the, the weather. I mean, uh, some year we're going to make more dry or only dry and no sweet wines and in some other year we're going to make lots of off dry lots of moelleux and it's not possible to make dry or, or sparkling so we don't do every uh, we don't do exactly what we want every year with it but uh, that's our, also our way to to work with the Chenin Blanc we prefer to make a an authentic, honest uh, wine representing the weather of the year. My co-host Amber and I met Julian last year in the Loire Valley. And on this night, I'm opening a bottle of his wine. Well, how are you? It's been a minute. (laughs) Amber, you sat out last week's episode. Where have you been? I like missed the whole Australia vibe. I'm sorry. Like shout out to Australia. But she's been busy. I'm booked and blessed. I'm getting these gigs and coins and planning a little bit of a move to New York. So. Oh, yeah, New York, huh? Yes, I'll be working at Terroir come June. Oh, so. la-di-da, look at you. <laughs> There's that. Moving up in the world of wine. Just a little, just a little. <laughs> I'm quite excited. So you were up in New York last week. Yes. Drinking some Shannon, I think. Oh, I was, I was right. definitely drinking More some Shannon. More on that later. More on that later. But we're going to uh, – so I brought some uh, – I brought a wine that I, I think you'll like for our, like, little – Reunited here, you know. I, so what do we have it. here? So we have Les Dejonias 2018 Vouvray from Francois and Julien Pinon. Okay, Vouvray, Chenin Blanc. What do you? What does this make you think about? You're, you're turning red a little bit. Like you're getting a little flushed over there. All right, so like literally, this just makes me think of wine zaddies. Wine zaddies. Oh God. Uh, okay. We're gonna hear about wine zaddies again. I heard like all the way driving through the Loire. I heard about wine zaddies. All right. So I know you thought it was crazy when I like brought up the concept of the wine zaddy, but in the Loire. Why don't you explain like, to our listeners what a wine zaddy is? Okay. So for our listeners, just like we'll break it down real quick. So a zaddy is like a middle-aged to older gentleman who just has like so much swag and it's like hello (laughs) and it's quite easy on the eyes can you not (laughs) and it's easy on the eyes but when we apply this to the concept of like the wine zaddy go on this journey with me i'm imagining like a fourth generation like winemaker preferably french or german you know with a beard who will whisper you know sweet nothings into my ear and make me cassoulet and then bam there you have it wine zaddy as it happens, Julian Pinon is one of Amber's very favorite wine zaddies, someone whose own importer describes him as, quote, a dapper dresser and maybe the only person we know who smokes a pipe. The Chenin is also great because of his uh, ability, capacity of, of aging. Uh, we have uh, bottles that, uh, which are older than 100 years, which is very old for wine. Uh, and uh, you don't have so many great variety that allows you such a such an aging, and it's probably because of the natural acidity of this grape. Uh, Chenin Blanc has, is not an aromatic uh, variety; is not so uh, not so pleasant, not so uh, um, uh, shiny. Uh, but it has the capacity to, to age very well and, uh, and to go through time and to change and to evolve. And it's also very interesting to, to follow and to test the evolution of the, of the, grape, of the grape during the year. And uh, yeah, for, for example, I, I had the chance to, to try a wine which was made by my uh, fourth ancestor. So it's a great, great, great 
great-father, uh, 1858, and uh, it was <laughs> crazy, amazing wine. Sorry, I was just trying to decide whether there was golden apple or stone fruit in this. <laughs> well, there's a little bit of pear as well, can I just add? And she's full, like this wine is full. All right, so Vouvray is uh, Chenin Blanc, and this whole episode today is about Chenin Blanc. Chenin Blanc from France, Chenin Blanc from South Africa, Chenin Blanc, one of our favorites, I think. Definitely. And I think we definitely fell in love with this grape in the Loire. But what was so interesting to me were all these little, like, Appalachian moments. Yes. Because France loves to make things just a little bit complicated. They are complicated. I think that's one of the, one of, probably one of the things that has uh, maybe kept Chenin Blanc from getting, like, bigger in the u.s than it is right it's still kind of really in the wine bubble i think and the residual sugar right i mean that's one of the things with shannon i think that we just have to say it right up front like i think a lot of what people have are these kind of you know sweet maybe even a little flabby vouvray that they've had right and so probably people didn't even know when they were drinking vouvray that they were drinking shannon blanc exactly because the labeling can be confusing and when we were in the loire we saw that there was vouvray but also Mont Louis Loire, Savagnières, like all of these things, and they right. make such it's distinct. Chinon Blanc, you exactly. know, like we had, you know, Samur, Anjou. They were, you know, everything is bottled according to place in France, as usual. As you know, honestly, they're not wrong. You know, I mean, it's it's not you know, but but the, you know, the American wine drinker probably doesn't know these names, and then they get a little bit confused. But there are some differences. Yes. So I would say for Vouvray, if you're going to, like, buy a bottle that says Vouvray, you should be expecting something that's, like, probably drier off dry, even a little bit sweet if you're getting to, like, demi-sac moment. And it's going to be a little bit fuller on the palate. Body will be a little bit richer. You'll get those notes of, like, apple, pear, a little yeah. bit of honey, But then think about ginger. this. So, but then there's Vouvray, and then across the river there's a, another village – Called Mont Louis, who I'm riding for because are, it's, and the wines are completely different there. Oh yeah, they're like dry, mean, and lean. But there's other ones like, and so one of my favorites is Sauvignon, which is like you know that's a little bit divisive in the wine world. I think there's a lot of like, I don't know, there's like a lot of competing narratives of Sauvignon, and the, you know the people that love it, like me, love it. It's it's it, it's it can be one of two things. It can either be like super austere it takes like years for it to you know get to a place like they you know it's a it's a they call it the thinking person's wine which is always like a dangerous thing you know like to call something and then there or like now it's like with with climate change it's getting so ripe you're getting like these 15 and a half percent Sauvignon, so right coming in hot yeah coming in hot so (laughs) but i mean you know when you get a good one I mean, we had some good ones. Shout yeah, out to I mean, you know, Damien LaRoe. Yeah, 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 Love yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but when it's good, it's When it's so good, it's good. one of the best wines in France. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So this is Shannon. Shannon can be all kinds of different things. That's the whole thing about Shannon. She's verse. <laughs> <laughs> Shannon's a moody bitch. <laughs> Probably a Scorpio, to be honest. <laughs> To read more about Shannon in all her moods, check out everydaydrinking.com for my article on my favorite Loire Valley Shannon Blancs. All right, so um, on this episode today, I mean, you, you went to New York. You did, you know, you did a little work up there. You did a I little was, everyday drinking work up there. I was putting in work, work, work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was with Caleb Ganser. Uh, met him over at his wine bar company, Vance or Naturel, which. If you're ever in New York, please do make a stop there. It's a super important wine bar in the scheme of the wine world, like exactly I, introducing I, new stuff to people. Yeah, right? I would yeah. totally hold it in a, a very high regard, and the team does a great job. Okay, and so you and Caleb talked Shannon, obviously. Shannon Blanc. Yeah, we go there. Okay. Uh, hi, my name is Caleb Ganser, and I have a wine bar in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> and it is amazing, Caleb. Yeah, we're, we're gearing up for a nice, busy summer, so cross some fingers. So I'm not going to beat around the bush with like anything. The main reason I am here today is to kind of go into a deep dive with Shannon. Let's do it. Um, as a psalm in New York, 
I think you can definitely say there is a lot of love for this grape in this city. Mm-hmm. Outside of New York, a little complicated. I'll yeah. say, like, coming from Philly, the my, like, old song that I used to work with, his big thing, he was like, Riesling is my wife, but Shannon is my mistress. <laughs> like, he wasn't, like, willing to, like, fully be out there with sure. Shannon. Sure. So we're working on it, but I guess, why do you love Shannon? Like, what is it for you that, like, does it? Actually, I don't love Shannon. I shouldn't agree to this podcast. Sorry, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Um, no, I'm totally kidding. And, and similar to similar to Riesling. So I always like whenever I'm talking about Shannon or Riesling with you know, anybody, I'm, I always sort of say they're quite analogous. Um, both grapes get a lot of ripeness. They have a lot of sugar and they have a lot of acid. And both grapes can make very good sweet wines that are balanced. And both grapes can make very great dry wines that are balanced. Um, and I love that. And I feel like Shannon just has a little bit more of like this like savory kind of earthy dirty character that Riesling always tends to be a little bit prettier it can be more steely and mineral I think oftentimes but it also edges on like the fruity floral side um, whereas Shannon can do that but it can also get real dirty you know what I mean like which I love um, like I love a you know rich like nutty kind of oxidative golden you know wine in the glass that's like very deep sometimes you know pretty high alcohol you can get 14 14 and a half percent alcohol Shannons pretty easily um, that have just so much character So, do you have, like, any early memories with Shannon Blanc? Or, like, was there a time or a producer that you were like, yes, this is why? Because I have one. Okay. So, what's yours? Tell me yours first. All right. So, mine is Francois Chidane. Okay. Yep. What is yours? Gosh. I mean, I I probably have to say Domaine Huet. Okay. You know, that was, like, I, I sort of grew up, you know, working in fine dining and, like, a lot of the classics and... Um, and Huet is, I mean, obviously one of the most classic producers in the Loire Valley for Shannon. I mean, kind of like the benchmark producer. Mm-hmm. Um, so fortunate to kind of taste a few different ones of those and just like. So wait, hold up. So <laughs> Francois Chidane and Domaine Huet are like two sides of a coin, two sides of the river. Yeah, this is giving me like big Romeo and Juliet vibes right now. <laughs> I mean, you and Caleb couldn't be further apart in your like likes of Shannon Blanc to be honest with you 1000% like I I don't deny that I guess just from our last tastings in the Loire with Francois Chidane like he's just giving you big like Scorsese or like De Niro vibe and his wines will just like cut you but like they get straight to the heart and they're bone dry they're definitely bone dry I mean versus Hewitt Hewitt where it's like big queen elizabeth vibe just like a little bit more regal a little bit more full the residual sugar is there they're not afraid to show it and i mean like different strokes for different folks okay and like i remember tasting them before i mean i probably knew what the grape was inside just from like studying but it was way before shannon was like a thing you know Uh um and it was like kind of it was like very vindicating to know that like a lot of psalms kind of came to shannon very naturally and then all of a sudden like it blew up and we were like yes we chose the right one. Exactly. <laughs> like we, we just love it, you know. Yes, the gamble, <laughs> yeah. like, it paid off. Everything right. was good. So I think for a lot of people, especially when they're first coming into wine, um, you know, the whole Appalachian moment when you're in a wine shop can be a little bit intimidating. Mm. And whereas in America, you know, like, when we're in the Finger Lakes, like, you know, it says it right on the bottle, like, yep. Riesling. So, like, you know what to expect. Or it says Cabernet Franc. You know what to expect. But with French wines, it's done via appellation, which is why you would say, or why you would see, pardon me, something like Vouvray Demisec, right. or Mont Louis Savoie, or Savagnas. So with that, let's say I go to Aster, mm. right up the street, and I was to get wines that had that appellation. What should we be expecting in the glass? Like just any of those appellations? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, so if you go to the Loire Valley and you're getting Shannon and, you know, I think it's it's helpful to sort of almost divide it, you know, because you have like the Touraine, which is a little bit more central, and you have Anjou-Saumur, which is a little bit more coastal. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, I think that's, I mean, I'm not going to ask an, an average person to like know which Appalachians are in which region, but if you do have a map and you are looking at these things, the Touraine tends to be a little bit leaner, tends yes. to be a little bit drier, um, at least like more steely, more stony, um, because it's slightly cooler of a region. Um, and there can be some off dryness, um, in there, um, as well. So it's, it's a little bit tricky. And then if you go a little bit more West, you know, into the Anjou-Saumur region, 
that's where you get a lot of ripeness. You know, it's a little more coastal, more consistent um, warmth um, in that area. And you can get grapes, you know, Shenons that ripen to about 14, 14 and a half percent, sometimes 15. Um, so a lot of ripeness. So you just get more, more mature flavors, you know, more deep apples and deep golden pears. And and even sometimes like, you know, that, that lanolin wooly character gets real intense. Um, and yeah, but the acids always stay, you know, they're always like kind of perfectly in balance. So. Which is so great. So how would that stack up in comparison to, let's say, I picked up a bottle of South African Shenan? So South African Shenans, t- depending on the price point, so like South African Shenans, there's probably like two different sort of ranges. If it falls in like less than 15, 20 bucks, it's almost always going to probably be more reminiscent of like Sauvignon Blanc in some ways, not quite as intensely like citrusy, but usually pretty steely, pretty dry, kind of neutral. Um, good. I think they always like those are great value wines for sure. They tend to over deliver in that regard, but I think you do miss out on a lot of the charm that Shenan can bring, just because I think they overcrop them and it's just like a little bit more. I don't say watery, but like they tend to be a little bit leaner. Yeah, a little higher yield as well. Higher yield, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's just you know more more grapes, slightly less uh, character to the juice, but still great wines. Whereas once you get over that twenty dollar price point into even higher, you know twenty to forty, maybe even plus you're going to be getting a lot more ripeness. Uh, you're going to be getting a lot more alcohol. You're going to be getting, um, it does tend to gear into more of like the Chardonnay world. You know, you do see a lot of new oak down there. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of, I, I, I like that style of Shannon. I think it's quite, it's, it's very rich. You know, if you like ripeness and oak and like, if you like good, like white burgundy or things like that, you can get a lot of value out of Shannon in South Africa, especially like 20, 30, 40 bucks. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're, they're delicious. They are very different than the Loire Valley versions. Acids mm-hmm. tend to be a little bit, I think, lower. Fruit tends to be a little bit riper, kind of more tropical. But it's always still in balance. It's just a bit richer. So I think a lot of times when in the food community we want to like highlight a wine, you can either do it on by the glass or in your wine pairings, etc. So mm. for me, what would be like your favorite, I'm feeling like bougie and I want to like ball out pairing with Shannon and then like your favorite everyday drinking pairing mm. with Shannon? Food wise. So many <laughs> options. Um... Let's see. And I guess I'm going to, so let's say it's like a richer style of Shannon, you know, maybe not quite an oaky version, but like a ripe, rich, you know, I would love either some like morel mushrooms or just, you know, some bougie ass mushrooms, yes. sauteed in butter, you know, some herbs, fresh herbs in there. Um, and, you know, obviously well seasoned, a little salt, pepper, et cetera, but like a nice like farmer's egg in the middle, kind of just mix all those mushrooms in with the egg and just like eat that, like there's that earthiness, there's that richness, and there's, you know, and there's just like these other extra little pops and je ne sais quoi's. Shannon comes in, is just like, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So that would be a little bit of a splurge. Like, it's an everyday splurge, but splurgy. Maybe yeah. some truffles in there, you know, okay, to, yes. to kick it up a notch. And then just like sort of basic, um, give me just like a cool Loire Valley goat cheese, you know, and maybe a little bit of honey. And like something creamier, like a creamier Loire Valley, like a little tang, um, but it's like softer. And then some Shannon, like, like that's good. That's that's what you want. Like it's just the acids work really well. The richness and the roundness works really well. And it's just like it's like a mouth hug. <laughs> a mouth hug. Yeah. Can we like trademark <laughs> this? Like mouth mouth hug TV. Imagine a hug in your mouth. That's <laughs> like, what that's what it is. All right, amazing. So I think one of the really great things about the Loire is definitely their agricultural processes. They've definitely become a home for, you know, natural wine. When Jason and I were in the Loire, like right before COVID hit in January of 2020, there was like a little beef and shade being mm. grown in between Mont Louis Loire and Vouvray. Mm. For me, what I think it's kind of like touching on is this like battle in between like sweetness and Mm. like residual sugar sweetness whatever you want to call it and like these bone dry wines that the Loire is now becoming known for and for me I don't know if you've experienced this but I feel like in the states like now everyone's like I want it super dry blah 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 and if you like even mention sugar sweetness it's like saying Voldemort like table side and then everyone's like no right but i love sweet wines like when we were there we all do yeah (laughs) everybody you can't not i mean it's just like do you like puppies and chocolate and walks on the beach of course like 
maybe not all together at the same time, but like Ugh. people like sugar, like it's very well dem- demonstrated. <laughs> yes, but I'm just like where I feel like it's really touching upon that, and like where can we kind of bring sweeter wines like back into the foray, like make people a bit more comfortable with it. I don't know if you have like any ideas on this or. You know, fashions come and go, you know what I mean? Like, sweet wine used to be the rage, you know, honestly, for, like, 200, 250 years. Like, like you, a really long time. Yeah, like, you, you you could easily, you could drink all the first-growth Bordeaux you wanted, and it would be very hard to find and pay for, like, the great sweet wines of Germany, you know? And now it's sort of the opposite, right? So, in, like, 60s and 70s, like, the switch just happened, and people were like, dry wine, that's it, that's all I want to drink. Nope, sweet wine's going to, like, give me cancer or something. Like... <laughs> If you bring a like, it, it, it's it's without fail. If I bring a glass of sweet wine to a table at the end of the meal, like, hey, here you go, thanks for coming in. Just wanted this on me. That wine's gone in two seconds. Like, people are not. Like, oh, I don't want to drink it. But like, if it's like you try to sell them a glass of sweet wine, it's like, no, I don't drink sweet wine. You know what I mean? It's like you do. You just want to pay for it because like that seems like you're like out of fashion or something. I don't know. Um, it's a complicated history with sugar. With that thoughts on the future of Shannon? Like, where do you see this going? Mm. Uh, it could go. It could go a lot of different ways. I was thinking about it like earlier. I was like, hmm, I wonder if like Shannon ter- becomes the new Riesling and it's like demonized. You're like, oh no, there could be residual sugar, therefore I can't drink it. Because um, I, I remember I had a table the other day and I was like, because we have a we have a wine. It were it was from Mont Louis, um, and I mentioned I was like, you know, there's a little bit of RS, but like it's it's definitely like effectively dry. And it's like if I would have just kept my mouth shut. They would have yeah, would have been fine. But it's like, you know, Psalms do this thing where they talk maybe sometimes a little bit too much. It's okay. We're just passionate people. Yeah. Like you just get, like, swept into it, and you just go, yeah. go, and go. It's all right. But, um, so, I think I think we'll be all right because most Shenans are made pretty dry. Which is funny, though, because, like, Domaine Huet now is, like, they're they're raising the flag again for, like, we just want to make real sweet wine, like, maker. Like, they make a little bit of dry, but, like, they want to make more sweet wine, which is, like, so interesting because that's not what the market wants. You know what I mean? Like Yeah, and when we were there, when, when we were did a whole tasting and everything, and it was amazing. But, like, they were showing all of their sweet wines. Yeah. And it was, like, delicious. And then right after that, we went to Philippe Rowe, who, like, also wanted to show, like, all of these sweet wines. Yeah. And I remember after that, that I was like, yo, Jason, like, I need the rest of the day. Because it can be, like, it's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. But it's great. They're Yeah, they're, and it's, like, it's, it's a time and a place. And maybe, like, you know... I think, you know, going into the Roaring Twenties, probably people are going to want volume and they want dry. So mm-hmm. it's definitely going to be dry wines for, like, the foreseeable future. You know, pendulum swing. That's what they do. And at some point, it will swing back. I don't know when or how or why. Like, a combination of enough, like, research or whatever and, like, sweet wines on the market. Like, I'm sure people will be drinking sweet wines sometime again, maybe in our lifetime, uh, as, like, a hip thing to do. No, I mean, I think, I think yeah, as long as, it's, as long as there's, like, a story and there's something interesting there and people, are, like, feel like they're part of this, like history when you're drinking something which that's what i love about wine is like you're part of this like eight thousand year human experiment you know what i mean potentially even deeper but it's like one of the few things humans have done consistently for that amount of time so like drinking wine is to be human you know which is great um but when will sweet wines come back i have no idea the future of shannon i think it's I think it's bubbles. I mean, I think Shannon's made great sparkling wines you know wink wink nod nod yeah do we want to open like I mean, let's you know. go like <laughs> Oh, my God. Are you... Not too bad. It's all right. That's kind of as good as it gets, frankly. Okay. If you make any less noise than that, you are the rock. I mean, (laughs) I don't know how to hold on to that bottle any tighter. As we go deeper into our conversation about Chenin Blanc, I figured we ought to shift focus from France and get a larger picture. So we should move south, all the way south to the place that grows the most Chenin Blanc in the world, South Africa. Now, it had been a while since I tasted South African Chenin Blanc. It used to be a wine that I drank quite often about a decade ago. But the other day I found a few natural bottles that I thought Juicebox Beth might enjoy, and so she and I did a little tasting. Okay, well, it's time for a little tasting with Juicebox Beth. (laughs) What's up? <laughs> so what are we tasting today? We are tasting South African Chenin Blanc. Wow. Specifically okay. natural. Yes. And that is a, a key distinction because I think a lot of uh, people have probably had some South African Chenin Blanc. It was like 
trying to make a thing out of it like about 10 years ago. They were trying to make a thing out of it like 10 years ago, but it was all kind of very – not all of it. I shouldn't say that. But a lot of it was really thin. And yeah, kind of and it probably basic gave, gave and, it a bad name. Yeah, and I mean not a bad name because I think a lot of it was pretty solid, but it was like 10 to $15, so it was good priced, but mm. it was like – it wasn't anything. Like nobody was like rushing to like get it, you know? It wasn't yeah. like, oh my god, I have to – make a place in my life for South African Chenin Blanc, right? Well, that's funny because fast forward 10 years and we're sitting at this table now with some really nice South African Chenin Blanc. Yes. I'm yes. very excited about it. All right. So let's, uh, do you have, a, you don't have the first one in your glass? Yeah, do you want a little more? Yeah. yeah give, me okay. a little, give me a little nice little pour. Right. So this, uh, this is Mother Rock Liquid Skin um, 2020. So uh the color is just quite vibrant like very like it's like tangerine definitely cloudy it, it's like it's like you squeezed all of your tangerines into a glass it's totally tangerine color yeah totally. it's really pretty um and yeah this clearly unfined unfiltered uh completely naturally made wild yeast it's got it actually says it on the bottle 10 weeks of skin contact wow yeah okay cool and so this is all right so this the guy that makes this, his name is Johan Meyer. He's only um, been—I mean, this has been a project for a while, but he's really only been kind of selling this since the late 2010s. So it's pretty recent. And he's near um, Cape Town in this region called Schwartland. Mm. What do you know about South African wine? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Except that it's delicious today. I know. I know that it's delicious. So this guy has a very cool nickname. Did you do you know that? The uh, guy who makes this. His name is Stompy. Stompy. Yes. Like the eighth dwarf? <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Why? I have no idea. Oh, does he like stomp on this grapes? Maybe. <laughs> we should investigate further. So how's Stompy's wine? It's like it's delicious. So I've actually had this before. I had it on um Fourth of July. I forgot the name of that holiday. I was gonna call it. I was gonna call it New Year's Eve. Independence Day. <laughs> uh, so I had it on the Fourth of July with fireworks, and it was just like I. It's a, this is exa exactly how I remembered it. It's really like intense, like exotic tropical fruit notes, like apricot. But um, yeah, really interesting. Uh, super acidic, like beautiful, beautiful uh, acid. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, like a Sunny D mimosa in like the best possible way. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I haven't so had we're Sunny well D beyond the like kumquat and marmalade notes at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's delicious. Like, and it's quite mineral too. Like, kind of chalky. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It's really chalky on the finish here. Yeah. 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 And um, there's there's a lot of information on this bottle, by the way. You know, one of which is that. It has the soil on the bottle. I know we promised not to get into the soil. Yeah, We you, made a promise to each other we wouldn't get into the soil. On the first episode, you made me promise that I was not going to become a soil person. Okay. Although, it, it is interesting because actually researching some of these uh, natural uh, South African wines, I didn't recognize that, like a lot of the soil types. Like... You know, yeah. typically you see... Well, this see, one is you know, called Malmesbury Shale, for instance. And I guess Malmesbury is a town near Cape Town. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's a, in the wine country, South Africa. And then, so I guess they have a special shale. Special shale. It's coming through. It's really coming through in the wine. <laughs> and that will be the entirety of the soil conversation. And cut. <laughs> cut on soil. Mm. Yeah, this is But delicious. this is honestly, like, everything you want, like, a sort of skin contact wine to be right I mean, yeah like, well it's yeah. not it's not t like tannic I, I don't think it's quite tannic but like, it has it has some a little, grip a little grip yeah but yeah. some some orange wines i think need food i don't need food with this like i could yeah. i could i could glug this baby in fact i probably will if you let me have i mean it. i think it would go with the salad that's in the kitchen <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah maybe Oh, by the way, we didn't mention we are actually recording this today in Philadelphia. Yes, live in Philly. <laughs> Juicebox Beth in... comes to Philly. <laughs> I always get very excited when I get to go in cars because I live in Brooklyn and I take trains and I walk pretty much everywhere. So cars are like, I'm like a dog getting into a car. <laughs> so. Did you leave your head out the window as you came? Yeah. <laughs> I actually did. <laughs> this is the, yeah, this is delicious. I'm, I'm super content. So this is $28. Um, 
a bottle. Which, I mean, maybe this was something that has come up a couple of times. Like, I think people have, you know, have been listening to the podcast or been reading the newsletter have been like, oh, these natural wines are pretty expensive compared to what yeah. I've been spending. Like, what, what, like, what are you finding that? Like, why is that? So I just think more, it's funny because like, right, natural wines are low intervention wines. So you think, you know, less work, but that's totally not the case. Like it's, I think it's more work. It's more thought that goes into it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think just a lot of these like are hand harvested, for example. So it's just more money. It, it just costs more. And, and, and I think, smaller production too. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think too, when I, when you do see a natural wine that is kind of cheap, I think there should be a red flag because it's like kind of like how is this small production wine so cheap? Yeah, right. In exactly. Case, like, you know. where did you right? Where yeah. did you source the grapes? I mean, exactly. and who? Yeah, are you paying your workers fairly? Like, yeah, yeah. You know, All the so. things that. Yeah, exactly. Um. So yeah, and I think I think there are great values, and I think you know when I find a great value that's like under twenty, I'm 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 super happy. But um, this but is the sweet spot. Do I think, you find that younger like a younger audience? Okay, so I mean. I'm, I'm going to date myself right now, but I mean, I think that like, this is people of my age would not necessarily want to spend $28 on a, or, 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 or higher on a, on a wine like this. Like they're locked into like spending $15 on a wine. And so I think that that's why a lot of older people maybe aren't like getting the whole natural wine thing, you know, cause they're right. So, but I feel like maybe younger people are just like, that's okay. Like $28, $30 is like normal then. Well, I think that they realize that you get what you pay for kind of yeah. in, a, in a way that like, you know, is it made ethically? And like they want, millennials want to pay for those things because they want to know right, that, right. you know, yeah. like, you know, their wine was made in a, like a sustainable way. So um, yeah, totally. And I think, I think too, well, something with natural wine too, like, so you can get, you can pay $28 for this wine and like, really know what you're gonna get and i think that's kind of like a risk with some natural wine where it's like right this could right. be really freaking good which it is or it could kind of be a flap flat yeah. a flap not a flap a flop <laughs> okay so you're flapping around <laughs> flopping around no it's a it's a flop it could be a flop um whereas like with you know classical wines that are you know they have like an aoc or like a whatever you know a d denomination of origin on them you know exactly what you're getting yeah. and um so i but i think like as time changes i think we want to take more risks and take you know more chances with your yeah. wine and i think like just sharing recommendations and you know this has my seal of approval juice box best seal of approval and I it's think, you know, bringing it back to South Africa, I want, you know, I think that like Schwartland, where this is from, which yeah. is near Cape Town, mm -hmm. it, it seems to be like where the younger kind of natural producers are. Yeah. It's like we've never, I've never had a natural wine from South Africa until this week. Oh, wow. How do you feel? No, it's great. It's great. I know. I think we talked about well, this though last week, like um, in the last episode with the Australian wines, I think that the demand for natural wine is so big that like... I think the, the the new kind of trend is from the Southern Hemisphere, right? You're getting stuff from natural wines from Australia, South Africa, South America. Like, there's just this endless demand, and there's no way that, like, Europe and the United States could meet the demand. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, and, I mean, you it's you had to – we almost didn't do this episode because these wines are hard to find, and you just happen to come across them. Like, you yep. can't just go into any natural wine job and be like, oh, by the way, from South Africa. Shout out to uh, Wineworks in Marlton, New Jersey, for having these. Oh, cheers to you, Wineworks. <laughs> so, what's our what's our next wine here? Paulus Wine Company Bosporage Chenin Blanc. Wow. Okay. Cool. Now, did you know, um, in my vast knowledge of South African culture, do you know that um, do you know what Bosporade means? No. Hit me. It's uh, a meeting in the bush. By two people. So we're having like we're having a boss barad right now. We're not in the bush. We're in an apartment in Philadelphia. But <laughs> for what purpose would two people meet in a bush? Never mind. In a game. In a. I think it says some kind of a safari or game preserve sort of meaning. Oh, okay. So like we would be meeting to talk about I don't know like hunting a lion or something. I don't know. Interesting. Uh, let's, let's do it. So I put my nose in the glass. Yeah. I thought it was Chardonnay. Yeah. I mean, that's a direction that Chenin Blanc can take sometimes. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. So I don't really get, you know, 
I would say like Lore, Chenin Blanca, yeah, you get apple, like super high acidity. This I'm getting more white peach and pear. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's really elegant. Super. This is and a finish to me. I mean, this is a very you know, I'll use an old term. This is a very linear, very structured white wine. And I think it's got like an amazing mineral finish. For our listeners who might not know what linear means, uh, like, Mom, I got you. Jason, could you just explain linear? What I mean is it's not like a – we talked uh, at some length about flabby wines a few weeks ago. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's much – it's a it's – a, it's a lean wine. It's, it's got structure to it. Like a lot, of, a lot of white wines don't have that. You know, it's very – it's like a laser going down your tongue. Sexy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is um, definitely get some mineral as well. Dried herbs. Uh, it's it's quite beautiful. Um, very different from the first. Very different. I mean, it's night and day, right? We've, I mean, yeah, we've yeah, done yeah. a we've done a one eighty, a yeah. three sixty. Wait, no, because then we're where we were. We but I mean, before. it's just like something that this is a this has been a theme here. <laughs> the this is two sides of natural wine. Totally. Right. I mean, so mm. one which is more classic in its flavor profile, right? Mm-hmm. And the other one that's like Funk Sunny Master Jay. <laughs> Sunny D. Mimosa. Yeah. And they're both great. Yes. See, I, this I want with the salad. You want this with the salad? Okay. Yeah. 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 Did I see Faro in that salad, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> nice. I'm really into Faro. Yeah. Faro? Bar- Faro. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, so with these kind of like the, the natty skin contact wines, do you find yourself having those without food more often than with food? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, it's hard to pair sometimes because they're unpredictable, right? So if I'm cooking dinner and I like want to open a wine, right? you kind of don't really know the taste profile you're getting it's kind of like you rolled the dice and you you know because they yeah. don't always show the classic expressions of grapes sometimes they do but yeah this is like complete opposite sides of the spectrum of natural wine and i love both of them in very different ways yeah yeah definitely so the winemaker here his name is paul jordan to jordan with two a's i guess it's jordan paul jordan yeah anyway his first release was 2018. So, I mean, this is just wow. like with the other one. These are very... Young winemakers. Yeah, totally. Cool. And also from um, near Cape Town. And what's interesting is his partner is from France. He has Pauline as his partner from France. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is... I, I don't know where Pauline is from, but I know a few people in the Loire Valley who have, you know, a, a South African spouse. There's a lot of kind of back and forth because a lot of the winemakers who grow up in Loire Valley, when they go do their stage or they go intern somewhere, they go away on their mm-hmm. room sprigga from the family. Uh, you know, they go down to South Africa to see how the grape is doing in another part of the world. Mm-hmm. So, so I know an, I know a winemaker in in Vouvray named Vincent Karim, and he has a South African wife, and uh, you know they make wine in both places. So it's kind of interesting, Chenin Blanc. The little Loire, South Africa connection there. Such worldly people. <laughs> Says Beth from her apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> with her with her boyfriend from St. Louis. <laughs> Just kidding. I love you, Jimmy. I hear St. Louis is the Cape Town of the Midwest. <laughs> That's what they say. You heard it here. But so what is your experience with Shannon Blanc then? I mean, because it is this sort of – we have to talk a little bit about Chenin Blanc as, like, the hip grape now. I mean, yeah. Well, so I think – well, it's hip with, like, sommeliers yeah. and, like, my dad. Cher <laughs> loves – he loves Loire Valley, Chenin Blanc, all all forms, but, like, I, you know, Vouvray is probably his go-to. What's your dad's name? Gerbert. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, he loves Chenin. So we actually drink a lot of it, but it's always Loire Valley. Um, it's always got, like, super high acidity – uh, and what does he like? Does he like Vouvray or Sauvignon? What does he like? Uh, uh, Vouvray. Vouvray. I, I yeah. have had actually one of the oldest wines I've had was a Sauvignon once. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, other, it's I've mainly just done like the classic styles. I mm. haven't really seen like much. So as we mentioned, we are recording this together in Philadelphia. Um, and when when Jason came over uh, to to the apartment. Uh, I played a joke on him that we only had one wine glass. 
<laughs> and uh, it was the, the <laughs> Jason is currently drinking out of a wine glass that is hand painted with stilettos, <laughs> handbags, and jewels. And Jeweled I, per, like there's little pearl necklaces all over, and it looks like there's sediment in the wine, but like it's a pearl necklace on the glass. It's like a natural wine glass. Yeah. And wine's supposed to taste better out of it. So Jason, give, give it a whirl. A swirl. What? I always say whirl. Give it a whirl. <laughs> wow. You know. Sorry. You have your Zaltos and you have your Riedels. <laughs> but this is where it's at. I need to take a picture. Take me out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That'll be in the newsletter, everydaydrinking.com. Yeah. You have to subscribe to get the, the, the photo. <laughs> That'll be behind the paywall. Yeah. <laughs> We did, we did have real wine glasses. No, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we did, maybe we didn't. After our tasting, I wanted to learn more about South African wines. So I spoke with Sipang Molisana, a wine writer based in Johannesburg. She's also host of the podcast, In My Kitchen. I started following Tipang's work a few years ago when she wrote a wonderful essay describing how her grandmother had run a shabin, an unlicensed bar in the family home. Shabins were a center of social life in the segregated townships like Soweto during the apartheid era in South Africa. As so often happens, our talk very quickly moved from Chenin Blanc and geeky wine topics to much deeper things, including how during the 1980s, winemakers from white-dominated Stellenbosch would come to the black townships for illegal wine tastings, something that was forbidden under the apartheid government. She also made South African wine country sound amazing and the sort of place most of us would love to visit once we can travel again. Here's our conversation. Cool. So, hi, my name is Tepang Budisana and I am a writer from Johannesburg, South Africa. Lovely, lovely. And how did you... Um, how did you get into wine writing? How did you get into wine? So I don't know how much of the story I'm still allowed to tell. Because oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it involves my parents. My parents had a bottle store when I was growing up right here in Johannesburg, in the East oh. Rand, in a, in a township east of Joburg. And so I guess I always had exposure to wine, um, but no real knowledge. And then when oh. I moved to Cape Town to study, I was working as a freelance writer for Pocket Money. And um, one of my clients was a luxury travel magazine. And so the client um, was generous enough to send me on assignments in the Cape Winelands. And on those little assignments, I suppose, you know, I started picking up all the things that I'd grown up hearing, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon. And then you ask the question, well, what is that? And all the big brands in South Africa that I'd grown up seeing on the shelves is, is where we were going. And I had the opportunity, I guess, to start a curiosity to ask um, questions that I think just drew back on on that time wow that's so what kind of that's interesting what kind of wines were in the bottle shop growing up i mean do, do you remember yeah yeah it's a very easy question to answer because there were like five major brands <laughs> and it's so funny because there's a very famous wine writer from johannesburg called uh, len masego and a few months ago i had the privilege of interviewing len for a story on johannesburg and johannesburg wine culture and so he had said uh, the wine that sort of encapsulates um, Johannesburg's people is the Mielast Rubicon. Um, and that's because at the time, um, some of those winemakers from Stellenbosch were venturing into the township when um, very few people would be willing to. And so you would have your Mielasts and your, and your Niederbergs. Uh, so all the big brands, all the famous ones were there. So what is the wine scene like in Johannesburg? So it's amazing. So Yeah. <laughs> It's incredible. So it's, a lot of people don't know that domestically, 70% of South Africa's wine is sold in Johannesburg. So even though, you know, nice for them, even though in the Western Cape, there are all these lovely wine experiences. The truth is South Africa's wine culture is actually designed by Johannesburg. So I'm not too sure if it's because of um, the tourism aspect. So, so Johannesburg is obviously the business hub of the continent. So you have all these amazing business travelers that come to the city and also it's the hub of shopping. So all these big luxury brands are in Johannesburg and people from all over the continent. It's such a delight to actually see it. So 
they'll come to Johannesburg and they'll go to these high-end boutiques and then they'll go to these amazing hotels and buy all this amazing wine. So that's the one aspect. And then the other aspect is um, wine is delicious, right? So <laughs> Johannesburg, we love delicious things. Um, so when I was speaking to Len Masego, he was telling me about how he became a wine writer and I should actually introduce the two of you. It's incredible. So he was in Soweto and he was the editor or he was a writer for the Soweto newspaper at the time and he later, you know, became the editor. So he speaks about how all these guys, you know, your Bayer's Twitter, all these um, the Stellenbosch winemakers would come to the township when it was not allowed and they would visit Len and his friends, go into the Shabines, be fascinated by Shabine culture. And then um, because Len was a student at the University of Johannesburg, he joined a wine club alongside Mutla Mokhasi. Um, then they would take them to their homes and have a whole wine tasting with them with inside their homes in Soweto. So really? Wow. Their story, yeah, so that was the 80s. And their story is really fascinating because 20, 30 years later, it's actually the truth. It's what's tending to happen now. That, like Len talks about how at the time, you know, he would go to the Shabin, not be able to find a good bottle of wine, have drag one out of the boot of his car. And now he'll go there and there's like a huge restaurant culture in the townships now. So he'll go there and they'll have really good wine on the list. I think wine people and wine makers, they love a good time. <laughs> and they're also yeah. really good storytellers. So, and they love a good audience. So if you can find a captive group of like eight young Sowetans and say to them, well, if you invite me to your house, I'll bring some wine. Uh, those doors were open. And I guess, um, I guess that's sort of how it happened. You know, there were all sorts of crazy laws at the time, you know, the Group Areas Act and, you know, also the number of people that could gather because then it could be like, are you having a secret meeting uh, about a political thing? <laughs> um, but they went. They went. Today we want to talk about, you know, Probably what I, I guess maybe your favorite grape. I think I've seen it written that this is your favorite grape. So Chenin Blanc, maybe we can talk a little bit about Chenin Blanc in South Africa. You know, I think it's, you know, for a lot of people, at least Americans, we don't know that much about South African wine or what, and what we do know is very limited. We know Pinotage, we know a little bit, maybe Chenin Blanc, but maybe you could kind of give us a, give us a little background on that maybe. Well, it's, it's quite interesting. So Chenin Blanc um, history in South Africa is um, a bit sad. So it was sort of deemed the workhorse grape. It was famous for being the backbone of brandy. It really wasn't famous for anything other than that for a very long time. And um, over time, because as I was explaining to you earlier, um, I suppose a lot of South Africans um, traditionally embraced, you know, your big red blends or Chardonnay. Um, and you know, then there were maverick winemakers who experimented with Chardonnay. And particularly because of our climate, I think people started to realize that Chardonnay is, is very well adapted to the climate. So today we have a situation where Chardonnay is actually the most planted grape in South Africa. And South Africa is one of the most, if you ever have the joy of coming, it's one of the most beautiful countries because we have very diverse um, climate. So in the cool climate areas, it's a totally different grape to what it is in, in hot climate areas. Um, so in the early 2000s, very cool winemakers started experimenting with Chenin. Um, and later um, in the Swatland area, some interesting maverick winemakers also began to experiment with Chenin. But funny enough, an area called the Breda Cliff is where Chenin is most planted. Um, but because I suppose there were a lot of old families and, and traditional winemakers there, it didn't get you know, the recognition it deserved. And, but recently, I've tasted some incredible Breda Cliff Chenin. And I guess that's part of why we're having this conversation today, because a lot of what we know is just what's out there. And unfortunately for um, the little guys, <laughs> they don't get <laughs> yeah. out there as much. So maybe for listeners that aren't as familiar with South African wines and, and the regions, maybe you could take us through maybe what are kind of two or three of the most important wine regions and, you know, what they're famous for. Okay, I'm so thrilled that you've asked me that. Um, because this weekend, actually, on the 17th of April, 
Stellenbosch is uh, celebrating its 50th birthday. So oh. three wine producers, um, after visiting France, came back to South Africa and decided that they're going to create a region or a ward to market their brand. Um, so it was Dalheim, Speer, and Simansich. And one very interesting fact about Simansich, it was the first producer of South African um, sparkling wine, which we term method cap classique. So it's made in like the traditional method or the method champenois. So Stellenbosch is, oh, what is the nice way of putting it? It's, it's the bastion, it's the traditional, mm. um, but in that area is a winemaker that you and I first started speaking about on email, um, Ken Forrester. Yes, yes. Create a Chenin Blanc in that area that actually goes against the grain and it went against the grain at the time. So I suppose that Stellenbosch um, is in a little fight with itself. It's sort of like uh, Godzilla and uh, who's the other guy? Yeah. Because well, that makes got... sense. It's like that happens with a lot of traditional wine regions like that, that starts off a certain way, right? I mean, and so what, what would be, what's, what was the traditional and then what, what was the sort of the new direction? So I suppose if we're speaking about the traditional, we're speaking about those Mialasts, we're speaking about oh. the Hartenberg, we're speaking about the Dalheim. But in the same vein, you know, Dalheim recently hired a black female winemaker. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I think, what we, our preconceptions that are stuck in, okay, I'm going to Stellenbosch and you're expecting a certain day out in those winelands and, you know, you want to wear your best dress and, and look professional and respectable. Yeah. And then you go out to the Swatland and you're hanging out with really cool, interesting guys, um, you know, your Donovan Rolls and your David and Nadia Sadis who are sort of like living off the earth. And then you meet um, Adi Badenhorst and, and very um, people that I suppose didn't have to fit into a box. So you, I suppose South Africa is in, and I guess, you know, it's, it's what it's always been known for. It's been known for walking that tightrope between democracy and everything that preceded it, all the colonialism yeah. that came with wine culture. And at the same time, it's all that tradition that we're celebrating on Saturday when we celebrate the Stellenbosch wine region. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, we're, 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 we're talking about, we're getting into thorny topics when we're talking about tradition in, in Stellenbosch, I guess, you know, and, and we're talking, I mean, we inevitably are talking about colonialism and race, et cetera. So my understanding um, is that there was also a lot of prohibition. South Africa couldn't really export its wine during the apartheid era. So yeah. democracy brought a whole lot of opportunity. So besides the winemakers, I remember having conversations with amazing people um, like Peter Finlayson, who is, you know, well, so he's from the Himalanada region and he's one of the first pioneers of Chardonnay. And he speaks about, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but he speaks about the times when um, the apartheid government wouldn't let them even try out new grapes. And so, you know, oh, really? the wow. also gave them the opportunity to embrace um, different styles of winemaking. And it gave, it gave rise to a lot of good, you know, not just the opportunity to export, but our, you know, the, the, the exchange of ideas that people mm -hmm. could go overseas and, and study and come back with that knowledge. They could taste. And that's also, I suppose, one of the things that makes South Africa and wine so interesting that they could go overseas taste different wine and go, oh, we've been using wood wrong for like the past 20 years. Sorry, guys. Well, this is what we learned on our <laughs> yeah. travels. And this yeah. is what we're going to do from now on. And I guess, um, I guess that's what makes South Africa a sort of a new world wine region that even mm -hmm. though it's got hundreds of years, I mean, Jan van Riebeck was one of the first people to plant grapes. Um, Constantia wine was drunk by Napoleon, even though it's one of the oldest wine regions in the world simply because of the fact that um, there was no democracy, it wasn't possible for it to flourish and blossom as it is currently doing. You know, is Chenin Blanc considered a, a sort of a, a new wave grape, I guess? Well, no, I mean, I guess um, they, all these grapes have always been there. I guess that just now you've got people that are willing to take risks. Um, You've also got a situation where a lot of the younger winemakers maybe have the experience of having worked on a traditional farm. And mm -hmm. because they don't have the, um, the anxiety of having to pay all these incredible things that come with owning your own land, they can, you know, we had this huge wave of garagists um, around the early 2000s and between 
I guess, then and now. But then at the same time, I suppose that it's sad, but you have to kind of adapt to the consumer's palate. And mm. South African food is incredibly heavy and rich, and people want wine that goes with that. And I, I suppose I had a very interesting conversation on Clubhouse the other day when someone was saying, you know, all around the world, wine is sold by cuisine. But in South yeah. Africa, people don't really know what we eat. And that's because oh. that's also why the wine doesn't um, translate in the same way. You know, you go to France and um, I remember being in Champagne and expecting certain things and that's mm -hmm. what I got. And I remember the same thing when I was in America. I wanted a big juicy burger and that was the wine that came with it. But when you come to South Africa, you look at the menu and you're like, what are all these words? What are all these things? And a lot of the time, restaurants aren't really catering for that. What are, what are the dishes like that that are oh, gosh. the classic well, ones? Guess, yeah, um, because there's so many. Well, South Africa is a very diverse country yeah. with eleven languages. So, but everybody can agree on a bride. So, um, that's basically <laughs> barbecuing meat, and I guess that's where that big red rich wine comes in. Although Stellenbosch Cabernets, um, and at the same time, our Cap Classique culture is growing as well. Um, I think Cap Classique also celebrated fifty years of of having been made. So, you know, we love sparkling wine, we love celebration, we will celebrate anything here. Um, so that works always. But in my family, um, my mom, when I was growing up, she used to make anything in the oven. Uh, <laughs> and it was normally oxtail or a roast. And I guess that goes across cultures. And then at the same time, there's an incredible um, steamed bread called Le Dombolo. And that goes really well with the stew. Um, but it also translates across cultures. You know, um, Afrikaans people and colored people eat different food. Um, I know that we've had a years-long debate about things like riyadi, which is like a tomato dish. Yeah, so because of the, the wealth of cultures, we have a wealth of food. Yeah. What, what is great Chenin Blanc in, in South Africa? I'm, I'm learning a lot. Maybe mm -hmm. that's why um, it seems like my favorite, <laughs> because every day I learn a new thing. So... Um, with 17,000 hectares of Chenin Blanc and Divine, I think South Africa has great opportunities to make very different Chenin Blanc. Um, mm. I know you and I recently spoke about Ken Forrester, and yeah. I was blown away because I had the opportunity to taste 20 years of Ken Forrester Chenin Blanc. Oh, you did? Okay, yeah. He had, he had said that that sort of zenith, that taste is, is what people have been chasing of the, um, the botrytis character, that wild yeast. And at the same time, um, I think that a lot of people are very, it's a very new concept of having a Chenin Blanc that tells of itself, it's its own story. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, that's actually one of the most popular styles of, of Chenin Blanc because they've managed to harness that yeast character where before they, they totally failed. Because... The oldest style of Chenin Blanc was a wooded Chenin Blanc because I think they were trying to parallel the Chardonnay style. Chard yeah, California Chardonnay or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I've had the opportunity to taste amazing Chenin Blanc from a, a fellow American, um, Andrea Molyneux. And Andrea and her husband, Chris, I think have been so clever because they've really gotten to know this grape because, as I said earlier, when you're in a region, sometimes you have to think and you have to adapt according to the region. And so the Swatland being so hot, they focused on, you know, heritage grapes and um, grapes that really do well in that climate. And Chenin Blanc is one of those. And so they've done the full gamut. Andrea and her husband have created, um, I would say like a Solera style Chenin Blanc mm. called the Olerice, which is a sweet dessert Chenin Blanc. And they've captured it amazingly. They even got 100 points for it. It tastes like honey. My baby sister was at, during the Zoom tasting with me and um, we just loved it. And we had it with um, donuts after because it was just perfect dessert wine. And at the same time, they are so serious, Andrea and Chris, that they can make a Chenin Blanc um, that is just out of this world that can either be wooded or lightly wooded. Obviously, the most famous region for Chenin Blanc is Loire Valley in France, Savignier, Vouvray, Mont-Louis. And I'm sure you tasted a lot of this as well. I mean, how does it compare to South African Chenin Blanc? Also, I suppose the Loire Valley Chenin Blanc is what South African Chenin Blanc aspired to be. Um, and the grape remains the grape. 
So you would still continue to get those beautiful apple characters and the stone fruit. But South African Chenin Blanc also has a citrus character, which um, is just delicious. Um, but at the same time, I suppose, you know, the climate is completely different as well. So in France, you yeah. have those um, cool climate characters that sometimes you would not catch in South African Chenin Blanc. And I suppose the other thing is because there's so many different styles of South African Chenin Blanc, sometimes it's wooded and sometimes overly wooded <laughs> and sometimes less wooded. Um, sometimes you never know what you're going to get. It is, really is a box of chocolates. The, the more we make it, the better it becomes. So switching gears here a little bit. Now, I understand that, you know, during the pandemic in South Africa, I think that numerous times there was an alcohol ban or a ban on alcoholic beverages and uh, including wine. And how, how did that, that must have really been difficult for the wine industry. Well, you know, I think that it's not as controversial a topic as people want it to be. Oh, okay. So it's before the pandemic in 2019, only 28% of South African wine producers were making a profit. And I only think 28% of only 28%. Really? So think, yeah. yeah. So I think what the pandemic did is it exacerbated an existing situation. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, when I was listening to um, the head of Binpro on the radio, he was describing how few wineries actually make a million rand a month. And I don't, I don't have the maths right now. But when I think about it, and I think about running any kind of business, you have to pay lights, water, rates, your staff, that million rand doesn't stretch very far. And so I think South African wine producers for the longest time have been using the hospitality industry as a crutch, you know, being able to have accommodation and a restaurant mm -hmm. on the farm, you know, to stretch their income. Um, but wine wasn't really profitable. And I think in the grander scheme of things, I've spoken to many people who've been able to consolidate their private buyers and they've been able to succeed um, through private sales. And then other people who were used to using um, the hospitality trade, they struggled a bit, but then they caught up with the private sales. And interestingly enough, exports went up as well. So this was one of the years when the UK exports was the greatest it's ever been. So okay. you know what? I, I, that's why I say it's not as controversial a topic as it, as it should be, because at the same time, people were physically dying. So I think you have True. to weigh the benefits and the cost of do you, do you open um, your, your business um, or do you trade responsibly? And people are able to drink wine in their homes um, privately. Um, or do you want a busy restaurant environment in the middle of a pandemic? You have to sort of choose what's more important. So the first ban was unexpected, but I suppose everybody didn't know, we didn't know what we were dealing with and we wanted to do the right thing. So the first ban, there was sort of blanket acceptance that, okay, people that buy wine generally tend to collect it and have it in their homes. So most of us, you know, we joke that we lost some of our best bottles over the course of the lockdown, which was also really cute, you know, being able to, you know, when I went home um, for lunch with my parents, it's really special sometimes to be like, well, I've been sitting on this bottle for like a decade and now it's just a random Sunday. So how, how amazing. Um, but then with the next lockdown, I think, um, and that was on trade. I'm speaking lockdown on, on trade. Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. everything from your liquor outlets to your hospitality trade. You literally couldn't buy alcohol. And I think that, that was frustrating. But I think the December ban is the one that people railed against because December is a lifestyle in South Africa. It's a culture. Like, it's its own. It has a yeah, life yeah. of its own. It's summer. <laughs> um, we're having rice or a barbecue. Meat, oh, it's summer, right. Drinking. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So not being able to sell anything over December. And then you've got the last of your tourists. So your tourists aren't in the hotels. You can't sell those expensive bottles. But at the same time, it created a new culture of South Africans to go to restaurants and go, oh, okay, well, I've never had this. Let's try it. So when trade did open up, one of two things happened was you either went back to your favorite brand or the ones that did a great job marketing themselves over lockdown 
stayed in your head. And because it was online and sales were open, you were able to actually buy during lockdown and then deliver after. So, you know, I, I, I think it's just, it's a crisis of business. And someone had said the other day, it's a bit like uh, when, when, when people are crying, tissue sales go up. And if you're a good enough <laughs> tissue salesman, you're going to make money. But if yeah. you don't understand how to sell tissues, the whole thing just looks like a crisis to you. Right, right, right. Say if someone in the United States who doesn't know very much about South African wines, maybe they had one South African Chenin Blanc or Pinotage years ago. They, you know, and you know it was pretty inexpensive, probably, you know, at that time. And and uh, <laughs> so, what sh what should we know about the wines? One thing that I think South African wine is really good at is sneaking up on you and surprising you. So you were speaking about the price. It is incredibly affordable. Um, it's also shocking that um, there is a grape for every occasion and there's, there's a wine for every mood. And it's amazing how quickly they're learning and how much... I just suppose like I want to cry because I feel like it was so privileged um, <laughs> to have this like great breadth of wine uh, where sometimes um, we also don't appreciate, I suppose, what we have. You know, um, when I was living in Cape Town and that's part of what made my writing um, so much fun, you could go out um, and if every, anybody ever comes to South Africa, I hope they do. There's so many, there's 23 different wine regions. So you get in the car, you drive an hour or two, um, spend a day out in the winelands, pay something ridiculous like $5 for like a five wine tasting, pay even more ridiculous fees for like a cheese and charcuterie board and eat like a king overlooking the most gorgeous vineyards. Um, there's a wine estate called Hartenberg in Stellenbosch and they did picnics for a little while. Um, and it's just exquisite. We have summer basically all year round and you're able to sit in the vineyards under these big trees with a picnic blanket and a basket filled with the most delicious treats because everyone's auntie seems to make something. And you know, this incredible wine and just marvel at how lucky you are. And that's the South African experience in a nutshell. Everyday Drinking is presented by the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network, produced by Jason Wilson and co-produced and edited by Miles O'Brien. Contributions by Amber Janelle Brown and Beth Kamadas. Special thanks to Caleb Ganser and Sapang Mulisana. Music in this episode from the EP Mementos by Ages. Check out our newsletter at everydaydrinking.com. We'll talk to you next week. Cheers.